You are listening to Marvel's pull list for new Marvel Comics on sale November 17, 2021. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Tucker, my boy, we have a ding dang delight of an episode for you. A true triple D. Also, how are you, my friend? Oh, I'm doing all right. Doing all right. We're into November. I'm like, I don't know about you. What is your policy on like holiday decor? Do you and the missus like to put up Halloween stuff? Two, do you like to put up other holiday stuff? Three, is there a let's take a break for a second period in the middle, like maybe before or after Thanksgiving? How does that work around your place? You not know I had a 12 foot skeleton in my driveway. <laughs> you were one of those. Yep. Actually, <laughs> yeah. the 12 foot skeleton, Skelly, as of the recording, is still up in the driveway just because it's a two-person operation and I haven't had a lot of time to take them down, which is fine. Yeah. Um, we pulled most of the decorations down and we had a, a welcome bat, <laughs> like a okay. welcome mat, but it was a bat in front of our front door. I have switched that out to a like wintry truck nice. welcome mat. And so I think within the next two weeks or so, we are going into the buying and figuring out what our decorations are going to be for the the Christmassy season. It's very exciting times. Oh, I love it. I love the getting into the spirit. It's great. Yeah. Are you going to be decorating? Or are you going to be wearing bells? Oh, yeah. I've recently got like so into all that stuff. Last night, we literally just took down all of our spider webs and stuff prepping for the next the next phase it's gonna be awesome i want i want some pictures but we're not here to talk about our decor for the seasons we are here to tell you all about the brand new marvel comics on sale this week we're gonna give out our picks of the week we're gonna give out some awards we'll figure all that stuff out we'll get into what's new on marvel unlimited including the new infinity comics as well as the trades and then a just friggin' fantastic conversation that we have for our reading club. Who's on the show with us this week? This week, we are talking to writer Dana Schwartz about She-Hulk. We are going back and checking in on a wonderful run, She-Hulk single green female written by the great Dan Slott. And because of that, Dan's going to pop by and give us some insights about what it was like putting that story together, where it all came from, all that good stuff. So some delightful Schwartz and slot business on the way. Yeah. And if you expect us to get some sweet secret details about Marvel Studios She-Hulk, you better believe we did not. That's not what we're here to do, <laughs> but we do. We, we, we talk a little bit about the upcoming show. Of course, if you saw all the cool stuff that happened during Disney Plus Day, you are even more excited about Marvel Studios, She-Hulk, and so much more. So it's a great time to get excited about old Shulky. I do want to also plug that I've been on some other shows recently talking about some things. Of course, there's This Week in Marvel and, and what have you, but I went on Behind the Toys and Geek Week to show shows that you can find over on YouTube. Uh, I had a lot of fun talking about just my like collecting side of things, especially like Marvel Legends and whatnot, but also plugging the, the various programs that I'm on, doing a whole bunch of those things. We are celebrating 10 years of This Week in Marvel right now, so it's a lot of fun. We're not here just to talk about TWIM. This is the official Marvel comic book podcast. We got to make sure people know that. Have we yeah, talked we about do. that? That's a, that's a good tagline. It's a friggin' officially <laughs> released Marvel Comics podcast. There is only yeah. one. This <laughs> is it. And let's get into it. Our picks this week are some really good books. First up, Darkhold Wasp, number one, written and colored by Jordi Belair, art by Claire Rowe, letters and production by VCs Clayton Cowles, 
And the concept is that the the Darkhold, the, this evil magical book, has infected the minds of numerous heroes who are hoping to stop its machinations. And so Wasp, being one of the heroes who is trying to stop it, has been infected, and it's showing her a vision of a more twisted path that she could have taken. And then you you see her relationship, Janet's relationship with Hank Pym. And there are similarities to what has happened in the main Marvel Comics universe and, and her feelings and stuff. But a lot of it is just a perspective of the way someone is treated by someone that should just love them and appreciate them and give them the time. And so this is a very heavy issue of big discussion of mostly psychological abuse. But if you know the history between Hank and Janet, there's a physical altercation that is part of this. And that factors heavily into the dark path that this goes down. I don't want to give it away because it is a very tense, very upsetting story. And then there's the last panel. Claire Rowe does such an incredible job of evoking this style, this vibe. We talked a little bit about Tom Riley and his work on The Thing last week and that sort of Chris Somney, Leo Romero. There's a very specific tone and feel that they kind of exist in. And I think Claire's work on this book does that as well. And funny enough, Jordy colored that book, The Thing, that Tom Riley drew last week. And she colors this book here as well. There might be some stuff that I think might trigger certain people. Like I've talked about it before. My mom was a victim of domestic violence. It didn't like trigger me in a very dangerous way, but I could see how this would. So take that for what you will, but it's a tremendous issue. Jordy being one of our favorite colorists is also, if this is an example of her writing for Marvel Comics, could be one of our favorite writers for Marvel Comics as well. She's just the best. Yeah, it's just so cool. I love it so much. And on that subject, you can go to marvel.com right now and check out an interview that we have with Jordy where we talked about this big writing debut for Marvel Comics, that is, of course. So love it. So much to enjoy there. My pick this week is Amazing Spider-Man number 78 dot B? Bay? You could spell it out B-E-Y, but Bay. B-E-Y. <laughs> yeah, it's like it sort of sounds like that, but like we know that it's short for beyond. Okay. One, it's written by Jed McKay, and two, it stars the Daughters of the Dragon, characters that we have seen him write so wonderfully before, Misty Knight and Colleen Wing. So knowing that this issue is going to star Misty and Colleen is so exciting. Where we start, you know, it feels like a classic issue of Amazing Spider-Man. And then a few pages in, we take a left turn, and now we are along for the ride in this amazing, like, I don't know. It's like the genre mashing type Daughters of the Dragon story within the pages of a book with the title Amazing Spider-Man on it. And I love it so much. I just think it's such a cool, unique choice. The way that we go through this story and the way that artist Eleonora Carlini brings it to life, it just fits. It's so perfect. That's a shout out to editors, Lindsay Kohick, Caden McKay, and of course, the great Nick Lowe for casting on this. And Federico Bli brings us colors here with Joe Caramagna's on letters. So yes, I was a mark for this from page one, but boy, oh boy, does it pay off. Yeah. All right. Our last of the three picks for us this week is Spider-Woman number 17. It's so good. Most of it takes place on a movie set as we join uh, Lindsay McCabe, who is Spider-Woman's one of her best friends, but also an amazing stunt woman. And the two of them are getting involved in some stuff, but we get to see Night Nurse in here. We get really funny bits. Just, I think Carla has 
some of my favorite current dialogue of like any character. I think in here, anytime Jessica Drew is just talking with people, I just get so into the vibes around Jessica Drew's ridiculous, horrible life and her terrible, terrible choices that she makes. Uh, of course, this again is written by Carla Pacheco. Perry Perez is the artist. Frank Darmada's on colors. Travis Lanham is the letterer. And the credits page on this is in and of itself, a work of beautiful art because Perry does this great thing every issue where he has something interesting in the framing of the, the big opening splash page. And in here, it's the title of the issue, Shootout at the Oh No Corral. And it's done up in webs with a little spider woman on it. And it's wonderful. And you see Lindsay sort of like diving through a wall. It's, it's a tremendous first page. But then the bottom of the page is the credits. It lists them as if you were listing movie credits. And so, you know, Perry is the director and Carla is the screenwriter and it gives a credit to stunt coordinator, Brian Connolly, which I believe is something that uh, is near and dear to Carla's heart. We get into the issue and it's Spider-Woman joining Lindsay on the set of uh, this movie. And it's, there's a, just a bunch of great friendship beats, a great bit of like having Jessica sort of think about who she is, what she's doing, her place in being a superhero how she's working through all that with her kid at the same time, but also tons of like really funny little asides, the, the conversations that are going on. There's a big Hollywood superstar in here who is a total jerk. The lead of this movie that is being filmed is not actually like pulling her punches or even like, you know, doing uh, movie punches. She's actually hitting the other actors. It's ridiculous. Of course, having Perry draw it, you get really interesting fight sequences. We get ninjas in here. We get throwdowns. There is a two and a half page sequence of Lindsay and Spider-Woman fighting a whole bunch of ninjas, but it's done in the Kill Bill kind of style of all the characters in silhouette with, in this case, a green screen background. It's so well done. Uh, and it ends with this big, intense, like, dun-dun-dun. But then we're going into Devil's Reign right after this. And I, I'm just like, what? What? What's going on? Yeah. Oh, God, it rules. Okay. We are diving into all of the new Marvel mags this week now. And to each, we shall be handing out. You know what? I went down a little pathway here. Because this is episode number 176 of Marvel's Pull List. Did you know that 176 is called an odious number, which mm -hmm. I thought was funny. An odious number <laughs> is a positive integer that has an odd number of ones in its binary expansion. What the f*** does that mean? Okay, no idea. <laughs> I'm not a math guy. I used to be a math major. Oh, yeah, you used to be a huge math head. Yeah. So we will be giving out our odious number award, not because that's a bad thing, but because these books are so good that you can just tell they're coming from miles away. You can smell it in the air. The first one I will be handing out an award to is Black Panther Legends number two. This is telling, of course, the story of T'Challa's childhood. I feel like it's something that can be just like the huge, huge well of information and things to explore. So seeing all of that come out on the page and see the choices that Tochi Anyabuchi, the writer, is making and really emphasizing and saying, this is a crucial thing in his life. This is a crucial point in his life. Every single choice feels even bigger knowing where it's going is really interesting. And the fact that he could do that as well as tell it with what she feels like a very authentic, youthful voice 
is a huge feat. So my odious number award goes to that balance between the big, huge, dramatic decisions that have to go into a character piece like this, as well as the ability to pull it off in a way that feels like a young person, just like a person, a kid who is forced into some really tough situations and has to respond. It's a cool balance. Heck yeah. All right. We've got Dark Ages number three out this week. And this is a, a book set in a world in which all the technology, all the electricity is, is sort of gone out and we have different factions. Most of the world is pretty peaceful, but some bad stuff is happening. Tony Stark was captured from the good guys in the first issue, and now our, our heroes are on the hunt for him. And we know that Apocalypse is involved and he's got a whole crew of no good nicks and all kinds of stuff is going on. I will give my odious number award to Tom Taylor for just, of course, murdering characters brutally, mercilessly in this issue and having heartbreaking moments. There's just a sequence in here and you're just like, come on, Tom, maybe just like have everybody have a, like a tea party or something one day. But no, I can't happen in this. It's a wild, great issue. Beautiful, beautiful art by Ivan Coelho and team. And yeah, this rules. Oh, yeah. All right. Next up, we have Fantastic Four Anniversary Tribute number one. This is the 60th anniversary, folks, of the first family. And this is a huge blowout issue that is dedicated to taking a tour of that history and highlighting some of the most pivotal moments there. It's split up into pages and pages and pages and pages of individual artists, writers, creative teams that are bringing it to life, which is really, really excellent. I implore you to pick it up. Obviously, this is all led by the great Dan Slott, who we'll be hearing from shortly in our reading club. But I think more than anything, given the fact that this is like a big moment, it's a big anniversary, it's a big celebration of these characters, and the fact that despite... All of that, the pressure, the weight, the celebration, it feels like a Fantastic Four book at the heart of it all. Huge shout out to everyone involved on this issue, and there are a ton of people. So my odious number award goes at the end of the day to that wonderful, fantastic first family. This is a delightful issue, and if you're an FF fan, it is a must read. Yeah. All right, we've got Kang the Conqueror, number four out this week. And this one sort of dives into a lot of relationship stuff, at least in Kang's head with Ravona. We get to see Kang's obsessions with this woman who he's met at the beginning of time, at the end of time, across time, and how that really drives his crusade of conquering. That's kind of been part of the whole series, but really we get a lot of it this issue. I will give my odious number award. There's a double page splash that I love, but there's a single page splash that Carlos Magno draws of Kang man spreading to like the nth degree on top of his giant throne with flanked by his armies and the lettering is just sort of like superimposed on top of everything, just saying Kang, Kang, Kang. It rules. You can feel it. You can feel the energy just coming off of this page. It's pretty gnarly. Oh, yeah. All right. Next up, we have Kazar, Lord of the Savage Land, number three. I think I've said this before, but I'm just so happy for writer Zach Thompson because this, at the end of the day, it feels like a Zach Thompson book. If you're a Zach fan, if you've been a fan of his work, if you've been a fan of his work with Lonnie Nadler, that they've done some great Marvel stuff in the past together, thinking of Cable, thinking of Age of X-Men, 
you really feel like he is spilling his guts out onto these pages and it just comes out beautifully. I'm such a big fan. My odious number award though goes to colorists, uh, Mateus Lopez and Matt Mila on this issue, because I think as much as anything, we know how important colors can be in a story. This feels like the peak level of importance that colors can play in a story because it really brings out certain moments. It really brings out time and space, where we are in the story, how we're supposed to feel about a moment. And they're so vibrant. They're so beautiful to look at. This is a gorgeous book. So shout out to the colorists on this one. Heck yeah. All right. We've got Moon Knight number five this week and more Jed McKay magic. This is a big one because we find out who is pooping in Moon Knight cereal. And uh, <laughs> it's it's a you get some some faints and some surprises and some delights. But it's also Moon Knight just he's so smart and so good and so gnarly at everything. But then at the same time, there's always somebody who's going to one up you. I think I will give my odious number award to the final page, the art in the the big final splash, the big, there's a big reveal by artist Alessandro Capuccio and Rochelle Rosenberg. It is pulled off perfectly and it's this cool moment. And, and even the lettering by VCs Corey Pettit, where like there's a specific lettering when the character says their name and I was like, yeah, this rules. Yeah. Talk about big, talk about smart, and talk about really unique moments. Next up, we have Sword Number 10. Not only is this an Al Ewing book, but this is a cosmic spacefaring Al Ewing book, which is something that he so obviously loves. And there are so many different things going on in here. And it's so great, so beautifully paced and wonderfully done. There is a moment in here that really struck me, though, because it feels so inventive, so cool. It's such a fun reveal. Uh, I don't want to say anything about it, but it feels like an idea that someone like Al or a writer or a creator has had for years. And it was just like, I can't wait to do this. I can't wait to find the right story to make this kind of reveal, to do this little thing that is really, really fun. I've never seen anything like it before, but it works beautifully and it just shoots you back in your chair, makes you laugh, makes you go, wow, okay. Now I have to like reread it with all of that in mind. It is so much fun. And I think it's one of those things that will continue to reverberate over the course of this story. Yeah. Man, that book is so good. All right. We've got Shang-Chi number six out this week. Uh, This is the big finale to the first arc, and it's Shang-Chi versus the Marvel Universe really coming to a head. Look, it is Shang-Chi versus Thor one-on-one, and you're like, yay, is that fair? It does get to be pretty (laughs) fair. You'll see why when you read the book. I will give my odious number award to the emotional stuff in here, though, there's there's some stuff that goes on, especially around Shang-Chi's family. And I think the team, Jean Lun Yang and, and DK Ruan and everybody have done such a great job of building up Shang-Chi and his supporting cast. And then, you know, you need to have something that sticks a knife right into the middle of it and then like turn it a little bit and go and like how that feels for you as a reader when you get attached to this character and these stories. Yeah. If you haven't listened to our interview with Gene, go back and listen. Like, just one of the best, smartest guys. Such a wonderful, amazing delight to chat with. And uh, after you do that, go to Marvel.com because there's a new interview that one Ben Morris did with Gene Luen Yang about all things Shang-Chi. So it's so much fun to uh, dive into all of that. I will take any opportunity to talk with and or about Gene. Just the best. Okay, moving on now, we are looking at Star Wars Dr. Afra number 16. My odious number award goes to writer Alyssa Wong. It has been announced that Alyssa 
is going to write Iron Fist, starring an all-new Iron Fist. It's so exciting. Alyssa jumped on board with this Star Wars Dr. Aphra series. Such a storied book, such a storied character in such a short amount of time, has made it her own, has made it something so specific, has made it so full of life, full of energy, and a great story that is at the core of it all. And it just feels like that thing of like, the creeping influence of Alyssa Wong will continue to go throughout Marvel Comics, and I just love it. So more great stuff on the way here in Afro number 16, and thankfully more great Alyssa Wong work coming across all shelves at your local comic shop. Heck yeah. All right, last new issue out this week is X-Force number 25. This is the all-surf-sub issue. Wolverine, <laughs> go surfing. Forge makes a surfboard made of adamantium. If that's not enough to get you to buy this book, I don't know what I can say. It rules. You got the Wolverine side of things. You also have this really heartbreaking Quentin Choir storyline that's going on and in, in here. And you've seen Quentin sort of like growing up and trying to be a better person over the last couple of issues and stories and his journey here just goes in this direction. You're like, Oh, poor Quint Quint. There's also a villainous thing that happens in here. And I'm like, these people better get their heads cut off by Wolverine because <laughs> what they do ain't no damn good. There's a lot of things I want to give my odious number award to. I'm going to give two, one to this big double page splash by Robert Gill and crew of Wolverine just surfing and the descriptions of all the surfing in here. I was like, surfing sounds pretty cool, but it's also really, really scary. Good job, y'all. I think I also want to give my odious number award to variant cover artists, Maria Wolf and Mike Spicer for the Native American Heritage variant cover. Holy moly, this cover is friggin' fantastic. It's Warpath on there. One of my favorite of the X-Force New Mutants characters. I love this image so much. If I had, if I was still getting all the variants like I used to get when we were in the office, this would be up on my wall in my office right now. Amazing work from Robert Gill on that issue of X-Force. Now that's what we have for our new fresh floppies this week and looking over towards Infinity Comics. Some great stuff on offer over there. Uh, X-Men Unlimited Infinity Comic number 12, Hulkling and Wiccan number three, Fantastic Four number two, and Ghost Rider number seven. Yeah. Um, also in Marvel Unlimited this week, we've got issue 31 of Captain Marvel. The book has been fantastic. The first issue of Defenders. I think that book is all kinds of weird and wonderful in every great way. Spider-Man Spider-Shadow number five. X-Force issue out this week. Oh, issue 38 of Runaways. The entire run of Runaways by Rainbow Rowell and company is now on Marvel Unlimited. Read one of our absolute favorite comics period, now on Marvel Unlimited. Runaways, go read Runaways. Read it, read it, read it, read it, read it. Do it, do it. What about the the collections? Collections this week, as usual, a bunch of stuff on the way. Some amazing Spider-Man, amazing Spider-Man epic collection. Guardians by Al Ewing. I was just talking about Mm. Al Ewing's spacefaring adventures. So much wonderful stuff in there. More Al Ewing on the way as well in Immortal Hulk book four. There's an Ultraman collection coming out this week. A bunch of great stuff. Heck yeah. Speaking of great stuff, we are now going to get into our reading club. Again, we are talking about She-Hulk, single green female, the first six issues or so of the 2004 She-Hulk series by Dan Slott and Juan Babillo and crew. We are talking with Dana Schwartz and even a little bit of Dan Slott. Let's get into it right now.
Tucker, are you ready to get green? I have no other way to introduce <laughs> our guest this week. Hello, Dana Schwartz, writer, podcaster, and awesome person all around. Hello, hello. All right. Thank you so much. Hi. Hello. Dana, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very excited for this conversation for many reasons, but to get it started, where did your sort of whole relationship, fandom, et cetera, with Marvel begin? So I was, if you can probably imagine, like kind of a dorky kid who liked reading a lot. But I, you know, stuck to like a lot of classics and novels. Like I didn't really get into comic books. I feel like that was probably because I was, you know, intimidated by like the one comic book store in my town. And I had an older brother, but he wasn't interested in comic books at all. So I was like, oh, well, that's just not a thing that I need to care about. But I remember specifically going to the library and seeing a copy of Watchmen. And I checked it out. And then I went back and checked out I think like one by one, like every other like V for Vendetta. And then I just wanted to like keep going the titles that I had heard of. And I was like, oh, and I kind of told myself like, oh, I'm just, I'm an omnivorous reader. I should just sort of get into this. I kind of told myself I wasn't a comic book person, but I wanted to have a well-rounded literary education. So this is probably like middle school or like beginning of high school and then thinking like, oh, well, I got to read, you know, all the classics and some classics are comic books. I started reading all of Neil Gaiman's Sandman and like The Killing Joke. And I think from there, I was able to tell myself like, oh, it's okay. You like reading comic books, even though you're still intimidated to go to the one local comic book store. But then I started reading a more ubiquitous stream of, of comic books. I think when I was able to order them online for myself, that was when I started reading a lot more Marvel comic books. Do you remember what the Marvel books that got you hooked were? Yeah, I think like a lot of Matt Fraction books. I think like Kate Bishop really got me into it. I mean, I just loved that series of Hawkeye. Yeah, that was probably the first. And then Dan Slott and She-Hulk was one of my favorite runs. For me, I think one of my main barriers to entry for Marvel comic books was that I never knew where to start. If you're a complete novice coming into the comic book world, you're like, where's the beginning? Especially if someone like me, I'm like a control freak and I want to have read everything and that's physically impossible. So it was very challenging for me to be like, okay, well, where do I start? And I was too intimidated to like go to a comic book store and ask someone because I thought they'd be mean to me incorrectly. Every comic book store I've ever gone to and like actually interacted with people, they've been very nice. But yeah, like I think we're talking like Dan Slott's like first She-Hulk run, which I loved because it, I felt like it was an introduction to the character and I wasn't missing anything where for some other books, I was like, oh, well, where do I need to start actually? Yeah, totally. You've had such a fascinating arc. I mean, not just in relationship to the Marvel stuff and the, the stuff we're talking about today, but as a writer in general, I'm curious I read, this could be wrong, did you intern at several late night shows? I did, yeah. I When I was in college, I interned at Conan, and then when Colbert took over The Late Show, I like was in the first intern class at The Late Show. I like assembled the cabinets in that office. <laughs> I ask because I was also a, a late night show intern. Hey, look at that. Yeah, I was a writer's intern at Late Night with Seth Meyers. I asked this, I bring this up because I'm curious. I mean, that experience for me was such a huge, like, 
I took just so many things away from it. Just having my back to the writer's room door was like one of the most in- incredible experiences I've ever had in an office. So I'm curious if you could talk about that, if you can quantify like what you took away from those experiences and how maybe that changed how you think about being a writer or being a creative person in general. Yeah, absolutely. When I was in college, I was a uh, pre-med. And so I was like, you know, fully in the organic chemistry, hard science world. And up until my senior year, I did internships in labs over the summer. Like I would literally be, I was at like the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. Like your job is like doing PCR tests, like boring, hard lab jobs. And I think I told myself like, okay, you're smart. You're good at this. Like, this is how you make a living. You can enjoy being a writer, but that's not like a job you can do for your life. Like, who am I? I'm just like a random kid from the Midwest. And then sort of on like a whim, not a whim, but like this, like what I realized now was a desperate Hail Mary. I applied to that Conan internship thinking like, okay, I need to do one thing I enjoy (laughs) before I spend the next eight years of my life in med school and then the rest of my life in a hospital. And so I did that. And it was just like such a wonderful experience, like realizing like that people lived and worked in these creative fields and, and you know, had fun and, and wrote comedy for a living. It immediately like clicked into place in a way that medicine never did for me. And so I feel like that changed the trajectory of my life forever. Like if I had had an awful experience, I probably like wouldn't have wanted to be in a creative industry. But no, it was like amazing. And then I threw myself into writing and I started freelance writing. Like while I was still in college, I just, I sent like embarrassing cold emails to every like website and news outlet that I read being like, please let me write anything for you. And I think the only people who got back to me were mental floss. So I started writing for mental floss and then it just, it kept going from there. So it was a really good experience. And when I started interning at The Late Show with Colbert, I wasn't a writing intern. They didn't like have writing interns, but I, my job was like stocking the fridge with soda, but I was terrible at that because I would just hang out on the third floor where the writers were the whole time, just like trying to befriend them. (laughs) (laughs) I love that story of your hustle, but also that, so when I was in college, I was a math major and I like, I loved math. It's just sort of one of those things. And then my second year of college, I remember going to school and it's just like something in my brain just stopped really understanding the high level math that I had been sort of really into and excited about and, and enjoyed. I just couldn't do it anymore. And so you have to, there's something that, you know, your body, your brain, your whole being pivots to figure out, okay, what do I do here? And I love that you can make that choice and you change the entire trajectory of your life and make these cool, bold moves. It's really inspiring. It's really fun. You say you you intern at Conan and Conan to me is a very specific type of, oh, this, this is a comedy person that likes weird, that is quirky. There's something fun. What are some of your favorite comedy troops or sketches or whatever it is for me? Like I feel a kinship with someone who loves Conan. Oh my God. Yeah. I feel like I, Conan's like weirdness and sort of like the way he, it always felt smart and silly at the same time was a huge influence on, on me and my writing and like the type of vibe that I'm always trying to achieve. I think like my biggest comedy influences were when I was in high school, which were like, those are like the formative comedy years for everything. 
I remember I was homesick one day. Maybe I was in middle school. That would probably make more sense. And my older brother had DVR'd a ton of episodes of The Late Show and The Colbert Report. And just for a full day lying on the couch, like under a blanket, like half feverish, I just watched through like like months of those episodes in like one afternoon. I was like, oh, people can be smart and funny and make good points using humor. In terms of like TV shows, I feel like 30 Rock was my big one. There are impossible levels of number of jokes squeezed into a tiny amount of time. It's wild. To me, 30 Rock is that perfect encapsulation of it feels very of the moment, but also there's some a timelessness to the weird and funny quirk of it all. I know. Just like the I feel like it's been wildly memed in culture. And I wonder, this is going to, I'm going to say the thing that makes me sound the oldest I've ever been in my life. But I wonder if Gen Z knows where those memes are from. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's nice that we're talking about this stuff because this is sort of where She-Hulk begins. This is She-Hulk 2004 for listeners, people who are reading along. We open up with a a graduation ceremony and we open up like with clearly a, a big moment in anybody's life and what is like a very interesting deliberate choice, obviously, by Dan Slott and company to kick things off there when he could take things in any direction, specifically with a character that's been around for a while and has a breadth of great stories that came before this, but kicking it off at that place with a, like a young Jen Walters who's studying law and all this kind of stuff. It's a really interesting thing. I, I want to get the credits in here real quick as we dive in. This is written, obviously, by the great Dan Slott with pencils by Juan Bobillo, inks by Marcelo Sosa, colors by Chris Chuckery, letters by VCs Dave Sharp. And then we also have Paul Pelletier and Avalon Studios and Roland Paris, Tim Simmons, Don Hillsman all jumping in across the run that we're going to talk about today. But do you remember the first time you read this run, Dana? Yeah, I actually, when I moved to New York after college for Colbert, so this was like 2015, I became friendly with Dan Slott and he's just a great guy. And I, so I was reading his Amazing Spider-Man's, Amazing Spider-Men's, how would he pluralize that? Amazing Spider-Man. Amazing Spider-Man that he was writing at the time. And I just thought his writing was so creative and fun. And so then I went back and I was like, oh, well, he's written She-Hulk. This sounds great. And by the first introduction to Jen as this like nerdy college student with this, as we later discover, like other side of her, it felt like it had a special place in my soul. Like I again, if you can imagine, was like a very studious college girl. And like, I came into college as a physics major, which shows you just how absolutely nerdy I am. And when I sort of graduated and the more confident I became and sort of came into my own when I found writing and comedy, I sort of had this confidence. Like I could go out on the town. I could talk to boys. I could like, I obviously wasn't She-Hulk, but I understood that dichotomy of the girl I was and sort of this person I kind of wanted to be now that I was 22 and living in the big city. There's so many people who do comedy who are just like such hardcore comedy nerds and they like live and breathe comedy. And that works. I think there's a a similarity in the world of Marvel, where especially in Marvel Comics editorial, we see a lot of people coming from theater, people coming from journalism, people coming from different backgrounds and bringing a different perspective to storytelling. And I think, you know, for you coming with this like scientific, analytical, sort of different academic background on top of then the comedy of it all, 
I think probably helps inform and direct a lot of the ways that you start to think about the way you write, the way you perform, the way you want to develop a scene or a character and stuff like that. And then probably the way you consume stuff like Dan's She-Hulk. Yeah, I think that's really well said. Like, I think for me, I knew that I never wanted to be a comedian. Like, I didn't want to be a stand-up. I didn't want to, like, write hard comedy. I wanted to write good stories and use comedy to help those stories. And I think Dan's comics, I think he does that really well. He's telling genuinely interesting, well-crafted stories that are woven through with very funny jokes. And I think that made me realize, like, how brilliant and smart comic books could be. Also, before Dan gets here, he is one of the most excited about the stories he's either telling, has written, or will tell. Yeah. He's so excited to experience and share the stories because he he loves these stories. And it's just, he has such an affinity for the Marvel world and the characters. And I rereading this first arc of the She-Hulk run, I was like, I fell in love again. I can close my eyes after reading this and recall reading these issues in the quote unquote wizard house where a bunch of staffers, we all lived in the same house and like reading them in the living room. And that feeling that I got of like, oh man, I really want to work at Marvel. And that, that like joy that these comics elicit. To get back into like this specific run, one of the things I love about it Obviously, relating to Jen and to some degree her She-Hulk alter ego as an individual, but it's so smart where it felt like it was bursting open the dam of potential of what superhuman law could be, where you're like, oh, these are genuinely interesting legal cases that I'm curious about. I want to see how they resolve. It was just working on every level for me. Do you have, or did you, or do you, like when you're writing Rescue, for example, were you conscious of like, you know what, these are my touchstones in the superhero genre. These are my touchstones in the Marvel universe, maybe, of characters that might not be similar to Pepper, but like they strike the tone that I'm going for. They have the action that I want to portray, that kind of thing. Did you have those specifically in mind as you were writing? Um, Well, for Rescue specifically, I felt like, the rescue comics that I had read and sort of the portrayals of Pepper Potts that I had read so far, like, hadn't captured, like, the, not angst, but the frustrations that I personally have felt being, you know, an employee of a big corporation and a big system. Like, at this point, I was, you know, writing for Entertainment Weekly, and I felt like I had a lot of responsibilities, but anyone who works a nine-to-five job understands that, like, there are certain compromises you make. And I thought it would be fun to sort of draw out like the frustrations that Pepper would have with Tony Stark as her boss, this like huge ego and someone who's always, you know, kind and well-meaning to her, but definitely the star of every room. And so that's what I tried to bring into it of how do you make yourself the main character when you're in the shadow of the literal biggest main character possible? Also, Dan, hi, how are you? <laughs> hi. Oh, my God. Dana, we text and message and things all the time, but this is the first time in ages. I can say this now. Uh, congratulations on your recently released novel, your world-famous podcast, your upcoming new podcast, and your upcoming marriage, and your obvious cloning experiments to allow someone to do all of it. Uh, well, I'm only inspired by the best, Dan Slott, who writes more 
comics per month than any human being should be capable of. <laughs> As our listeners know, Dan Slot has now entered the chat. Dan, <laughs> thank you so much. You kindly, I honestly didn't think you would have the time to come stop by and say hi. I do not. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think so. So we won't keep you terribly long, but Dana chose the first arc of the She-Hulk run you wrote back in the, the early 2000s for the Reading Club. Are there any memorable tidbits of launching this, of pitching this, of, of how did this come together? Uh, this was my first Marvel ongoing superhero book. I had worked for Marvel in the past, but mainly on licensed properties and funny animals. And then I went over to our distinguished competition. And when I finally broke through over there with a, uh, a big project, People at Marvel went, oh, you'd like to do superheroes. What would you like to do? And I had my She-Hulk pitch ready. I've wanted to do that forever. Just jump in there and put her in the law office and having fun. And now I get to watch a TV show of it that Dana is working on. I'm so excited. I think it's going to be fun. Everyone over there on the She-Hulk show is like the coolest people in the whole world. I can't wait to see this. <laughs> See, listeners, this is literally what, Dan, we were talking about this exact thing, how much we love your infectious excitement when talking about different projects, when talking about the stuff you're working on, when talking about the stuff that you're not even working on, when you're talking about the stuff that you're just a fan of. It's the best. They have a murderer's row of talent over there working on the new She-Hulk show. I cannot wait to watch this. Dan, when you mentioned the pitch that you had right off the bat for She-Hulk, and you said it was just like Jen doing law, having fun. Do you remember, like, specifically what your angle was, what the conflict does? Like, obviously, we know it because we've read the story. We love the story. That's why we're talking about it today. But from its, like, most, like, small nugget of an idea, do you remember what that was? Yeah. It was Allie McBeal with muscles. Like, we knew she was a lawyer, but we rarely saw her in court. It was always wacky John Byrne break the fourth wall stuff. Or with David Anthony Kraft, it was this kind of serious melodrama, like with her against her father, the uh, sheriff. You had all these elements there. And I always just wanted to see her like, what kind of law did they have in the Marvel Universe? In a universe where people have x-ray vision, is that an invasion of your privacy? You know, or Dr. Strange's Eye of Agamotto, unlike in the movies where it's time, in the Marvel Universe, it's truth. If you're hit by that and it's a truth ray, can that be admissible in court? You know, I wanted to do the kind of law cases you could only do in a superhero universe. And I thought that would be fun. We're actually getting back to that in two issues of Fantastic Four that are coming up. Because She-Hulk is a FF honorary member. She was, during the burn years, she was on the team. I wanted just to have fun and do, before Rainbow's book starts up which is gorgeous. I've read the first seven plots for that. Oh. That's a great book. Before I just wanted to have fun and get She-Hulk in a courtroom with the FF. And we have a fun case that we're going to try, and that's coming up in the beginning of December. Very much looking forward to that. Dan, also one of the things you talked about the law firm, can you explain the significance of the naming of the law firm to our listeners? Uh, the law firm that She-Hulk works in in my run uh, is Goodman, Lieber, Kurtzberg, and Holloway. And the one name in there that is made up is Holloway, who is one of our new characters, who was uh, one of the partners. But Goodman, Lieber, and Kurtzberg were the names of like the people that started up Marvel. The publisher and Stanley's real name is uh, Stanley Lieber. 
and Jack Kirby, the king, his real name is Kurtzberg. We had a point in the original She-Hulk run where we took a hiatus and then we relaunched the book. And during the hiatus, they did House of M. And I was really bummed because we had a House of M story that we would have done if we didn't take the hiatus, where when the world gets reworked, where mutants are now running the world, we were going to have her law office be called Claremont, Cockrum, and Byrne. <laughs> I was like, ah. But yeah, no, very happy with Goodman, Lieber, Kurtzberg, and Holloway. And they worked in Timely Plaza, which was the previous name of the company that would become Marvel. And most of the people who worked at Timely Plaza lived in an apartment building called The Excelsior. It was my first monthly superhero book for Marvel, and I just threw everything in the kitchen sink into it. I kept thinking, like, they were never going to let me write again, so I'm just going to throw everything in it. Sure, yeah. Dana, have you ever talked to Dan about this run before? Yes. Do you remember what those conversations ended up being about? Like, did you go deep on, like, who this character is? Did you go deeper on story, on anything specific? I remember you describing like the core of who Jen was to me versus who She-Hulk was. I think it was like really important to you and not to speak for you that like Jen as a character was as well developed as She-Hulk the character. It was really important to me as a straight white male writer that I expressed to Dana how women should think. <laughs> and oh, come on. I think if I was doing this today, I probably wouldn't want to be the, the guy writing She-Hulk. Like I, I read Rainbow's scripts for the upcoming monthly She. Oh, I'm so excited! Oh, they're so good. You know, I feel I can get away with it in the FF because it's the FF book. But I think until there's more of a parody of uh, male to female writers, that the people who should be telling these stories are the people who have these voices. Well, I think and. I value your run on She-Hulk so much. Like I was telling the guys earlier, like I felt such a kinship with sort of this idea that on one hand, you know, this studious, you know, literal student trying to just sort of be a person in the world, even through your insecurities. And on the other hand, sort of this larger than life, a little messy as I may or may not have been in my early 20s. And I feel like it was such a relatable person slash person's that it helped get me back into reading comic books as an adult because I was like, oh, this is a character that I can relate to who feels like interesting. And the cases that she was dealing with were fundamentally interesting questions that I cared about. You know, as a character, my take on She-Hulk was the way Bruce Banner, he's this meek and mild guy and the gamma in him brings out his rage, you know, or... Leonard Sampson, it brings out his inner hero or the abomination, someone who pretends to be people all the time as a spy. It brings out this ugly lie in himself, this ugliness, the abomination that it's not just about strength or mm. rage or this. And for me, She-Hulk was about someone who keeps her free spirit inside. And the minute she gets to be She-Hulk, she gets to let that out. And the journey I was trying to take her on the book was to see how beautiful and special and wonderful Jen Walters is. Because the whole world loves She-Hulk. How can you not love She-Hulk? She's awesome. She is awesome. Um, Dan, before we let you go, you created a whole bunch of characters and fun concepts and using comic books as uh, admissible pieces of, <laughs> of evidence in court. Have you, in the, gosh, 17 years or so since the book started, have you picked up any of these characters in any of your other titles, any any of these things, any of these threads, aside from, obviously, Shulky herself? 
wow, it's really weird to think of certain seeds that have been planted 17 years ago in a book that might somehow spin into something hmm. where there would be a reckoning. <laughs> Check out the reckoning war this January, <laughs> 17 years in the making. Uh, did I do that right? They- <laughs> yeah, I heard the da da does. That felt very right to me. Were you teeing me up for that? I was trying to get you to say that because <laughs> I've been telling Tucker and Jasmine that you teased Reckoning War in the pages of She-Hulk years ago. And I remember in all the various creative retreats and stuff over the years, I've been waiting and waiting and waiting. I can always see it's in your mind. And now we're getting to it. It's very exciting. I've been like seeding it in almost everything outside of Spider-Man that I've worked on in Marvel since coming back to Marvel and doing She-Hulk. So it's little hints and teases all over the place. Like every panel I've been on since the start of She-Hulk, there's always someone who comes up for a question and you're like, oh, you know, it could be any panel. It could be like how to break into comics. And so it's like, when are you doing Reckoning War? <laughs> so I, it's been 17 years of that. So now we're doing it. Yay. I just wanted to bring up, this is totally off topic. It's not a character that you invented, but it's, I think you basically invented him in this iteration because he gets a complete personality makeover. But Awesome Andy, I just think, is the best and sweetest android on the planet. I love Awesome Andy so much. Me too. <laughs> awesome Andy's just a sweetheart. The best. He's adorable. Yeah, and <laughs> not not talking about the show, but in the comic run that we are talking about, Awesome Andy is just the best, and I love him. Yeah, there's in one of the issues that we read for this, he's going to go to a Mets game, and then Mallory has him work late, and just yeah. the way Juan Bobillo draws his hangdog <laughs> expression, and he's hunched over, he's like, oh, I just want, you could tell he just wanted to go see some baseball. It was so sad. Awesome Andy loves the uh, amazing Mets. It makes perfect sense. Yes. And Dan, we love you. We thank you for coming and stopping by. Yay, it was fun. And now, so now back fun. to the Reckoning War. I'll see you guys. Bye. Bye, Bye, Dan. Back to the She-Hulk run. One of the things I had just talked about really quickly was the art, which for the first four issues by Juan Bobillo and then Paul Pelletier comes in for a couple of issues. Paul and Dan collaborate together on a bunch of stuff. But man, I forgot how much I loved Juan Bobillo's art. It's so weird in a lot of ways and it's so unique. His style has evolved a little bit over the years. So he doesn't do as much, you know, like straight superhero stuff anymore, but this, especially the way he draws She-Hulk and when she's like buff and like flexing, he draws a muscle on her that only, the only thing I can sort of say it's akin to is there was a a wrestler named Scott Steiner, big (laughs) pop-up pump who would flex his muscle. And there was this giant ball of muscle that popped out of his arm. And that's what She-Hulk looks like. She's just so awesome and cool and big and badass. Yeah, I always felt, I mean, for me, as a woman reading these comic books, like I think there's always a fine line in the way that She-Hulk is drawn and making her like sexy versus wildly sexualized. (laughs) This run, I really like that she seems strong, which I like. She seems strong. I think Awesome Andy as a character, that character design is just so incredible because he's so expressive without having human expressions. Speaking of like Awesome Andy, when you think back on this run, these six issues or dance run in general, I assume maybe Awesome Andy is one of those that that just comes to mind. Do you have like things that when you think of this book, you immediately think X, Y, Z? 
Oh, yeah. I love Mallory. She's maybe my favorite character. There are parts of my personality that can be a little Mallory bookish. And I think understanding how to harness and use them and and understand how to how to use the, the Mallory book energy for good is a journey I'm on. I think she is one of my favorite, most compelling characters because she's a woman who doesn't have powers, who's existing in this world with a ton of power. Yeah. And she has no fear, too. Yeah. Like, she'll stand up to Jen because she understands that, yeah, Jen can squash me as She-Hulk, but still... I'm the one here with power. I'm the, you know, yeah. the, like she, she knows her place and she's not afraid of, of anyone or anything. She's, she's great. Yeah. She messes Jen around in a way that like, from Jen's perspective, you're like, oh, well, this isn't nice. But from Mallory's perspective, you're like, she has to establish who she is as the senior lawyer in this, you know, newbie comes in who, yeah, is physically imposing, but still is lower on the hierarchy. Yeah. Another character I loved in this was Ditto. Oh, yeah. What a smart idea to have Ditto serving subpoenas. Serving subpoenas. <laughs> I think when you say great idea, like that, the law firm is just full of ideas. And I love how Dan said he had this pitch ready to go and like he was just, he jumped all over it. You can tell he's probably for years beforehand had just been like, all right, I want to put this in the law firm, this in the law firm, like a super speedster to relay messages and, and courier stuff. Ditto as the person to help people around the office or also to serve papers. And the little touches of this meeting room, we have to clear out, change the lighting and, and drop in 100,000 gallons of seawater and all those little touches that I think it's the second issue where we really get to explore some of the, the law firm and the superhero part of it all. It's such a blast. It's, I want to live in that. Yeah, that's such a fun world. And I think like that's why it was a no brainer when it was like, you know, what comic run do you want to talk about? Like, it's just so smart and fun and dynamic and lived in. And I think like in those first six issues, Dan hits like a few of my favorite cases that she held candles, like standalone cases. Dana, I'm curious as like someone who's such a crazy successful writer still so early on in your career and someone who's written across media, whether it's comics or novels or TV or some of my like favorite publications to read on a weekly or monthly basis. Do you have a medium that you think that one is your favorite or that two you think harnesses your strengths as a writer the best? That's a good question. I think no. I think like I'm a very easily distracted person. And if I'm working on one project for a long time, I get very bored and, and lonely. And I think like being able to jump between TV and novels and podcasts and comics, like it keeps me sane. I will say something I really liked about comics is the collaborative nature of it, like working with an artist because writing novels is very lonely work, you know, for like years at a time, these ideas are just in your own head and you describe them the best you can. And it's kind of amazing. It's like the best feeling in the world to write something and then see an artist bring it to life in a way that's better than you could have imagined in your own head. And so that's very fun. Yeah, I think that's interesting to me of just like being able to bounce around and flex the different muscles because they all kind of require different parts of creativity and different kinds of thinking and researching and, and putting all the pieces together to tell a proper story. In terms of writing comics, are there other characters that you want to be able to tap into or you've 
experienced in your reading that you're like, I want to tell this person's story. Oh, yeah. I mean, I wrote, you know, one shot of Deadpool and that was the most fun I've ever had. Like we talked sort of earlier about like my love of like jokes and early Conan comedy and 30 Rock. And I feel like that's the character that I can bring it out in. I love Kate Bishop. And I also love Kitty Pride as a young Jewish girl. I think that there are certain aspects of her story that I would love to tell. Wow. I yeah, that that sounds that sounds pretty perfect. I mean, you you've got friends in the X office. <laughs> uh one Zeb Wells. Ah. Uh, God, it was the I mean, the She-Hulk room was amazing. I think Zeb is a genius. His issue, I think it's Wolverine's birthday with that he spends with Spider-Man. It's just like one of the most beautiful comic books I've ever read. The Spider-Man story you're talking about is from Amazing Spider-Man Extra number two. So for everybody out there, go to your Marvel Unlimited, read that story. It's got art by Paulo Rivera. Wow. I mean, Zeb and Paulo together, that's dynamite. Genuinely, I think gun to my head if someone's like, what is your favorite single issue? That's it. It's like the most brilliant character development. And it's gorgeous too. All right, Dana, we'll let you get back to uh, to making some awesome, I don't know, journalism, TV, I'll do my comics. best. Thank you so <laughs> awesome much. Awesome stuff. Thanks so much. And I, I would imagine we'll probably talk to you later when it comes time to talk about more She-Hulk stuff. I can't wait. This has been great. Thanks so much. Thanks, Dana. Thank you once more to Dana for joining us and talking all things She-Hulk. And of course, thank you to Dan Slott. Always a delight to chat to him and a wonderful time talking to Dana as well. So thank you both of them. That wraps it up. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Pagos, Tucker Marcus, Jasmine Estrada with help from Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager. And, you know, while we were recording, I looked up Brad Barton's high school yearbook And actually, his nickname was Odious Number. It's so funny how that all worked out. Get out of town. You know what? It makes sense. You know what? Our listeners at this point, an odious number of episodes in, 176, it makes sense to them, too. It does. I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. And this is Marvel. Your universe. Your universe.